0: in part nine of our discovering God series and, uh, and and last week Pastor Judah took us through the people receiving the Ten Commandments and the people receiving the covenant of God and, and when you get to the end of that section he was going to going through in Exodus 24. In verses 12 to 18, the people end up receiving the covenant and they give a verbal response back to Moses saying, we accept this. And then they do a sacrifice at the bottom of Mount Sinai and Moses takes some of the blood in verse 8 and sprinkles it on all the people. That's awesome. And now they're fully restored and brought into covenant. And then Moses goes up on the mountain of God so that God can give him the instructions in full and God's gonna write those two tablets with his own finger. And it tells you that it starts with six days of just him being up on the mountain and on the seventh day, God calls to Moses. But before God gives them the covenant, before God gives them the instructions and all those pieces, Israel gets something else. They get something better. And that's something so important for us to see because as Israel says yes to the covenant, they don't just get a whole list of laws. They don't just get a concept of how to live and rules. What do they get? They get the tabernacle. They get the dwelling of God. They get God's presence among them that they can experience God in full among them. Now, this is something so important that we miss it. It takes up 50 chapters of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 50 chapters, that's 20% of the Torah is all about the tabernacle, it's the longest speech that God gives in the entire Torah, so this is something vital, this is something that you can't just cruise by because you're like, this is boring, I don't want to read this, the entire point of the covenant is that humanity can experience the presence of God. The entire purpose of the covenant is that humanity will experience the presence of God. And so this is the climax of the book of Exodus, coming out of slavery so you can experience God. Because it's not just about coming out of something, it's about going into something. And so what God's going to be taking them into is how to come into and discover what they are saved into. And so although we have almost seven chapters of content to go through today, because I always get the longest sections... We're going to talk about a lot of it from 30,000 feet, but I just want to establish kind of three things that kind of set the tone for everything that we're going to talk about. So here's the first one. This is all about God dwelling in the midst of his people. It's all about God dwelling in the midst of his people. In Exodus 25, 8, God says it very clearly. He says, make me a holy place, and I will dwell and locate myself among them. This is the strongest statement in the book of Exodus about God's purpose, that he wants to center himself around people so that they can organize themselves around him. If I put myself in the center, then you'll want to live out of me being in the center of your life. If you were to go to Exodus 29, 43 to 46, God says it even more clearly. He tells them, I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's Exodus six. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord your God. So God is sitting there saying, you already know me from what I've done and now you're gonna know me more as I dwell among you because I am your God and you are my people. And so all of these pieces we're talking about It's focusing on a dwelling place for the first few chapters, but then it's going to switch and it's going to focus on it being a meeting place. You have God dwelling with you, but you also have God meeting with you. And those are incredibly important terms to understand when we're talking about our faith. And so we're going to walk through the tabernacle and we're going to talk through um, those terms for a little bit in the beginning, and then we're going to end up talking about the priesthood for quite a long time. And even the term tabernacle, you have to realize that there's so many different names for this tent that they have. It's called the holy place, Mikdash, but it's specifically called tabernacle, Mishkan, through most of these passages from Exodus 25 to Exodus 31. And that term, Mishkan, literally means the dwelling. It's the Latin that we get the term tabernacle, but it literally just means the dwelling. It's the dwelling of God, but it's also going to be called the house of God, And it's also going to be called ochel moed, the tent of meeting. So the dwelling and the tent of meeting are the terms I want you to hold on to. But one of the things happening in this whole section describing the tabernacle is that this is a subtle allusion to creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 everything you see in the tabernacle becomes a microcosm of humanity in God's presence in the garden. And so the whole structure of the text sets that out. God will give six different times that he instructs them to to make something. And then in his seventh instruction, he goes, take a Sabbath, rest. And all of this is to remind God's people of his original purpose for the world that the Lord always wanted to inhabit the whole earth with heaven and earth united in harmony under God's sovereign rule and his glorious presence filling the cosmos. He wanted people to be taken back to what his original intent was. And the tabernacle gives you a picture of that here in Exodus. Now, there are like 60 different parallels that we could note on that. I'm gonna give you six because we don't have time because that's a sermon series in itself. But as you're talking through the tabernacle, you're going to see things like their cherubim, these angelic beings over the the Ark of the Covenant. You're going to see them weaved into the curtains. Well, the only time you have the cherubim before Exodus 25 is when they're guarding the eastern entrance to the garden after humanity has been taken out. You're going to have a menorah lamp that all the descriptions describe it as a tree that's bringing light And it's almost this picture of tree of life. You're going to see all these descriptions of gold and these stones called onks being used that show up in Genesis 2, 11, and 12 among the four rivers. You're going to see God being in in the midst of all of these things. You're going to see light being described throughout the tabernacle, and they use the term maor in Hebrew, the same term used for the sun, moon, and the stars in the Genesis account. So you have all these parallels, and I could keep going and keep going, but it's trying to help the people reimagine the garden experience. Yeah, I know. That's how I feel. <laughs> and, and it's seven chapters. So, and, it's, and, and it's the people moving not only from their concept of the garden, but from their Sinai experience. They're on the, the ground at Sinai before the mountain of God, and they're experiencing the presence of God. And this is saying, how do they take it with them? How do they take this experience with them? And not only just for the present, this is something that launches us into the future because you hear a future echo of all these pieces. If you were to read Revelation chapter 21, verses one to three, when it describes the new heaven and the new earth, it says that they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Sound familiar? It's the same language that God uses to describe his presence at the tabernacle in these passages. But this is more than just God in a box. This is not God just in a structure. In John chapter 1:14, John the Apostle talks about how the Logos, Jesus, became flesh, and then he uses this term skino in the Greek, fun word, and he tabernacled among us. And the glory that usually is in the tabernacle over the ark, that glory is now walking the streets, talking, healing, showing compassion, and greatest of all, sacrificing himself. And so what you're gonna find as we go through this is that Jesus himself was a heightening of what the tabernacle stood for and what the priesthood accomplished. And so we're gonna finish our message talking about that because that takes us into a deeper understanding of what Jesus did for you and I so that we can experience the presence of him. And so God desires to dwell with us. We belong in proximity to him. And this is where your fill in the blank comes into play. Because if you're doing that, because it matters so much, this is what the fill in the blank is. God will always be as near as you allow him. God will always be as near as you allow him. Because there's dwelling and there's meeting. And a lot of us know this. Often God is present. We know he's dwelling. But we don't feel like we're having an encounter with him. And God wants both. He doesn't want to just dwell near to you. He wants to meet with you. So that's point number one. <laughs> point number two is much shorter. And that's the fact that God cared about all the pieces that symbolized his presence and power in the tabernacle and in the priesthood. Everything was supposed to be perfect. It was supposed to be the best of the best. It was supposed to help us learn what sacred space is. That this, this is more than just a building. This is about worship. It's about the presence of God, heaven on earth. And, and although it's bringing up this ancient concept of sacred space, we have this in our own culture. It's more secularized. But if you even think about your home, unless you're kind of odd, most people don't have their front door go right into their bedroom. We have a whole movement when somebody comes to our house that you go from your front yard or your driveway or your, or your front house into some type of entryway, into some type of common space, a living room, a family room. And then whether it's your kitchen or your bedroom, those things become more sacred. They're more unique. They're more special. And then you have the bathroom, the throne room. I'm just kidding. So, right? But we even have that in sports arenas. We have that in shopping malls, that there are places that as you move closer to the main event things are more important, they're more valued. So we have this concept of sacred space. All these passages on the tabernacle are helping us to see this. But they're gonna use all these terms to talk about how you make something sacred, ordination and anointing and consecration. And they're all telling us that this is something purposeful and that you can rediscover what it means to worship God in sacred space, to see God for who he should be as the center of your world. That's the second point, C-H, much, close, much much shorter. Third thing, intimacy and presence is still very restricted by sinfulness. We are messed up people. And this made the process for the tabernacle of restoration and connection super intense and super complex. So there's washing, and there's blood sacrificed, and there's a priesthood, and there's anointing. And the dwelling and the priesthood offer insight to what is needed in order for relationship to happen. And it only could happen in full through Jesus. And so it's not about the tedious rituals. It's not just about the items. They are all symbols of a higher reality, how humanity could connect with God eternally. And this is why across Exodus and Leviticus, God is constantly saying, be holy as I am holy. Or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Because as you become aware of how holy God is, we learn all that had to be done in order for humanity to draw near to a holy God. There's a lot that had to happen that we're gonna read here to draw people closer to God. And so you're gonna see that we can discover Jesus' powerful activity mirrored in these chapters in Exodus the ways that he opened up direct access perfectly so we could experience the presence of God. And then even greater, by his work, the continual presence of the Holy Spirit does what? It tabernacles in you. You have the presence of God indwelling you. So now that we've kind of set the stage, let's talk quickly quickly, through the materials, the ceremonies, the paraphernalia, the construction, and the personnel of the tabernacle. Amen? All right, so if you have your Bibles, open to Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 2. It's page 65, and the Bible's in the seat in front of you. And this is what it starts with, and we're not going to be reading all the text, but there's certain texts we're going to read. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So before they start building, they need all the goods to build. And so God tells them that they need to bring a contribution or an offering for the making of everything. Why? Because they're at the bottom of a mountain that's not near a trade route, and they need to take out of their own supplies all the stuff to make everything God's going to describe. Now, why does God ask them? Because we know from the text of Exodus that God can work with the natural elements and he can make manhu, bread, come from heaven. He can have quail show up. He can have gold just spit out of the mountain. Why does he do this? Because the gift of experience, self-sacrifice and direct involvement for the sake of encounter is always worth much more. When you have to give of yourself, of something of yourself to be a part, you are invested, you care about this. And so then it lists all the items in verses three to seven, metals and fabrics and skins and gems and oils and wood. And again, you have to remind yourself of what happened when they left Egypt. When they left Egypt, the text tells you that they pillaged the Egyptians. The Egyptians are giving them gold and gems and clothing and linen. And you have to think about this. It's been three months and they are traveling through the wilderness, running out of food, running out of water, but they have wagons of gold and rubies and linens. It's like that space ball scene. Where they're carrying on the mount on that planet all the luggage of the princess, and they're like, "Why are we taking this?" Do you realize that it was not for them? They brought it all so that it could be used for God's dwelling place. It was. What are you going to do with gold in the wilderness, right? It's for God's place. So, if you were to jump ahead to uh, chapter thirty-one. Chapter 31 kind of gives us some insight into what's happening here, although it gives the listing at the end because it's going to talk about the people involved in making all this stuff. So God is spiritually going to fill. He's going to gift people to make all this. Verses 3 to 5 say, says that he filled with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. That there was two guys, Bezazel and Aholiev, and a whole score of other artists, like Judith over here, she should have been in that list, that were going to be used to craft everything that God was going to instruct. And you have to remember, he is a created, gifted quality creator. He created everything in this world. And so when God gives his spirit to do that, they could truly construct and fabricate and have the wisdom to assess and inform the quality of what's going to go into God's place. It's interesting. It's the same exact words that you find in Proverbs three nineteen to 20, those four descriptors of how God creates the universe. He gives that skill to these two guys whose names mean in the shadow of El And the father is the tent. Very interesting. Now, if you were to move to go back to chapter 25, we're all over the place. (laughs) And if you were to go to verse nine, and this also comes up in chapter 26 and chapter 27, Moses is going to repeatedly be told, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That when God tells Moses about this, there's more happening than just Telling. God's going to give him a vision. The the visual terminology is going to be used. It's this Hebrew word tabnit. And scholars actually wrestle with this because they don't know if he's seen some kind of like archaeological, or not archaeological, architectural design and schematic that God's like, here, let me show you this. And it's like Iron Man with holographic, you know, like he's moving stuff around. Or if he has seen a glimpse of the heavenly tabernacle itself, that he has seen the tabernacle in heaven. Or if he's seen like a forward vision of the final product of what it looks like. And whether he saw any of this, Moses is getting some type of download. Now the book of Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 mentions this and it reasserts it. It says, these things serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But even more, if you were to jump to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, there's a moment really briefly where it says that heaven opened up and God's temple in heaven was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. And it's giving you a picture of that heavenly realm. Now, all of this is to remind us that the tabernacle is not an exact representation of what's in heaven. It's a symbolic earthly reflection that, with our human limitation, gives us a chance to experience and encounter the presence of God. And so, now let's talk about what's in those items. Let's talk about what's in the whole tabernacle. And so, as we go into all these, it's a good question to ask with each item what does this tell me about God and how he deals? With his people, And the guys in the back are going to put a picture up on the screen that will help you kind of visualize what some of these things look like. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what's in that back room, chapter 25, verses 10 to 22, the Ark of the Covenant. This wooden box that's overlaid with gold, and it has this mercy seat on top. It's the only furnishing in the Holy of Holies, in that back room. And before you even get a layout of this tabernacle, we see this as the center of gravity for everything that's going on. Why? Because this links God's dwelling place with its earthly, his heavenly dwelling with its earthly counterpart. I like what Robert Lo- uh, Longacre says. He says, this was the item that symbolized God's presence. It is the living heart of the whole dwelling and entails the construction of all that accompanies it. Well, inside this box, God tells them, you're gonna put the 10 Commandments, you're going to put the ten, the testimony, the decalogue. The covenant that we have is going to be in this box. And the box is not, not that large in size. Now, we know there's other items in the box, but we're not going to talk about those right now. This, this ark is not very large, but if you read the descriptions, which we're not going to read together, it's all overlaid with gold. And then it has this lid on top, this mercy cover that is all one piece of gold that's hammered together. And it's got molding on the side and molding on the feet and rings to put poles in on the side to carry it. Well, the text actually takes a little bit more time to talk about that lid, what they call the mercy seat or the mercy cover. In Hebrew, it's called the kaporet, And the reason why it's called that is because it's an atonement seat. It's a mercy seat. And when we talk about atonement or mercy, you have to clarify what that means. This whole lid recognizes or represents the process of causing people to become allies in relationship with God, that you are no longer an enemy, you are family. So atonement turns aside God's wrath. It turns aside the way God should deal with us because of sin, and it says, we're right, we're good. We are not at at odds, we are not in hostility. You and I are together. And it represented the fact that God is arranging this from his presence because that's what's gonna be above the Ark of the Covenant. And it describes these two angelic heavenly creatures, the cherubim, that are hammered in gold above it, and their wings stretch out to cover over the top, and they overshadow the cover, in a sense protecting the cover, but also bearing God's throne. Because what's going to happen is as you read the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you're going to see visions where these cherubim show up, and they are carrying God's presence. So these are supposed to represent the fact that they are kind of the bottom. And so this is not just the lid, but it's a place for God contacting earth. It's a place where God comes down. And this is why a lot of people call it the footstool. Because when kings would sit on their throne in the ancient world, they would always have a little mini seat right underneath their throne where they would set their feet because the king's feet should not have to touch the ground when he's on his throne. The ark serves as the footstool. It's it's the closest access that the people get to the presence of God. But verse 22 is actually telling you what all of this is about. If you read verse 22, it says, God tells them, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, I will speak with you. This ark is all about encounter. It's about the presence of God. And so this whole description of the tabernacle starts with the presence of God. Now why keep it invisible, right? Why put it behind a curtain inside this room that only one person one time a year can go in? Well, there's one aspect where God doesn't want them to make anything into an idol. And I think God knows if we had this outside, you would all treat it like all the people in the ancient world do. And you would think that it's all about the gold box. But there's another piece happening and that's that God wants them to love, obey, and engage with him on the basis of faith, not sight. Because God has already seen that when he's directly there among them with the Shekinah glory, with the cloud, they still go, I don't know if you're with us. And God's like, okay, obviously, you need a little bit of a stretch of faith where you don't see me, but you know I'm there. Because that's going to build your faith in me. All right, let's speed up now. You're like, you're not already going fast? Like I'm, let's speed up and talk about some of the other furniture. Because in that front room, the holy place, you're going to now have other items that are normally inside tents. One of them in verses 30, 23 to 30 of chapter 25 is the table of showbread, where they have the bread of the presence that's set before them continually. Leviticus 24 expands on this, but what this is simply doing is symbolizing that continually God is there with them just like Israel in a tent, and they are always in covenant meal with him. And the book of Leviticus will tell you that weekly, the priests would put 12 pieces of pita bread on there, and then they would replace it at the end of the week. This is different than what happened in the ancient world where other people would worship their gods and they would put food before their idols every day and then come and take it away because they would go, our God ate it. This isn't even near God's presence. It's in the front room. It's in the holy place, not the holy of holies. And they would replace it weekly because the symbol is just to remind the people that God is constantly present. And they could see that from outside when the tent, the outer veil was open, the people could see inside the bread. And every time the priests came in, they could see the bread. And it was to remind them that God is there and they are in covenant meal with him. And then there's another item in there, the menorah, the golden lampstand. Verses 31 to 40 describe it. It's a pretty hardy lampstand because it is made of a full talent of gold. That's 75 pounds. I'm glad I did not have to carry that. And this this menorah has seven different kind of branches coming out with cups or holders that are almond blossoms that are there to put out light. The oil from the lamps would put out light. And all of this is to represent that God is home. Because if you're in a tent in the daytime or at night, you would have your oil lamp going. And now God has seven, because it's a number of fullness. And those, those lights are going, and it's this warm glow to remind you that God is home. And when you think about this tabernacle sitting at the center of the people of Israel, and at nighttime, not just one little oil lamp in your tent, but seven large, thick cups of oil with light. The tabernacle is the brightest tent in the entire camp. And everybody can always look to it and go, our God's with us. Our God's with us. Our God is present. And, and so it hearkens to this presence of God being there, but it also being shaped in all the descriptions, if you read it, being like the branches of a tree. It represents like the tree of life an olive over an almond tree, which is a reminder that God is watching, that God brings new life, that God provides. And if you read verse 37, it tells us that the lamp will be set up to give life, light to the space in front of it. The lamp is not oriented towards God because God's like, it's really dark in here and I need to be able to see. No, he puts it so that the people coming in to serve can see. It's for humanity, again, so that they can recognize it. Now to speed up even more, You get into chapter 26, and it's going to describe the frames, the outer curtains, the internal curtains, the bases, the bars, all these different things. And it's going to tell us about the colors, which are important, but we can't talk about it long. The blue, purple, and scarlet are royal, but they're also supposed to represent the color of the sky because of that Genesis creation connection. But it's really going to give us a description of the breakup of the rooms, that there's the first room, the holy place, the HaKodesh, and then the Holy of Holies, that smaller room with the Ark of the Covenant, that is the Kodesh hakadashim Now, verses 31 to 34 of chapter 36 will tell us about that veil, that curtain, that's there from the holy place to the Holy of Holies. We're not going to say a lot about it, but it tells you in verse 33 that they're supposed to bring the Ark in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place, for, will separate you for you, sorry, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And that curtain with those same colors of blue, purple, and scarlet is gonna have cherubim weaved into it with gold filigree because again, they are guarding the entrance. And the way it describes it, it's one long single curtain that's almost 15 feet. A lot of us tend to think of the veil in the temple or the tabernacle as something that you could walk through. No, it's one long curtain that even when the high priest would go in one time a year, he would have to go over all the way to the far side and creep around the curtain to get in. It's not direct access into the presence of God. Well, let's zoom out now and go outside. Chapter 27, verses 1 to 8, is going to describe, and we'll put a picture up in a moment that has this, it's going to describe the bronze altar that was for sacrifice and all the utensils that are used. And it's a reminder that something dies as a substitute so that I can live. That killing and cooking and sometimes eating would every day relearn the fact that I am atoned for, that God's wrath has been turned aside. Leviticus is going to describe this a lot, but all... In essence, what Exodus is trying to show is that all of this is slaughtered at God's house, cooked at God's house, in God's presence, so that God could continually receive their worship and maintain his relational presence with them. Now, for those of you that like barbecuing and grilling, this is a large grill. It's seven feet by seven feet, okay? That's 56 square feet of cooking surface, just so you know and it's got a a bronze grating and network to hold the coals and the wood. But if you were actually to jump to chapter 29, verses 38 to 42, and you don't have to go there, it actually tells you what is brought every day. Because one of the biggest mistakes people make in understanding the Old Testament sacrificial system is they think every family, every day, was coming and bringing a sacrifice. And they go, how many animals are constantly being slaughtered if every family of a million people is That's not what happened. Three times a year for certain festivals, whole families would bring stuff. And for certain sins, people would come and bring something. But there was two sacrifices that happened every day, no matter what. It was a lamb in the morning and a lamb at twilight. And that lamb would be sacrificed so that the priest could go in to the holy place and minister. And that would wash the sins of the people for that day. And then at evening, because you screwed up throughout the day, they would sacrifice another one which would cover you while you sleep. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool. So, so it, it prescribes this two times a day covenant meal with God because it's not just an animal being slaughtered to by blood cleanse you, but it's saying this goes up to God as a whole burnt offering. It's a pleasing aroma to him and this means that we are in relationship together. And so two animals die as a reminder of the daily effect of sin And the need for an eventual, once and for all, for all people, sacrifice. This is what Jesus did. Well, right next to it is a bronze basin, or they used to call it a bronze laver. Now, it's kind of funny if you ever want to look it up. 38.8 tells you where they get the bronze, from the mirrors of all the women. I think that's funny. So the whole focus of that bronze basin is washing. It's very straightforward. They shall wash with water so they do not die. It's like so straightforward, because when they're approaching the altar, when they're approaching the tabernacle to go into the holy place, dirt always adulterates anything it touches, whether that's a surface, whether that's clothing. And so not only is it always reminding them that I have to remove everything, but they're dealing with animals. They're dealing with slaughtering of animals. So they have blood on them, and they have to wash and cleanse themselves. Well, it zooms out even more, and now it describes that whole court of the tabernacle, 150 feet long by by 75 feet wide. And it describes that and the curtains. And really, when it describes this exterior fence, it's not because God's like, I don't like everyone coming into my property. It's so that no person inadvertently wanders into the holy place without being cleansed. Because what would happen is you would all be walking around on your cell phone and you would just walk right into the tent of meeting because you're not paying attention. And God knows that and he knows that if somebody has sinned and they haven't been cleansed by sacrifice or washing and they show up there, they're dead. And so it describes all of that. But all of this is an invitation into God's space. Come to my driveway, (laughs) come to my yard. This is my space, it's my holy ground. And God delighted in group adoration at a single location with him. To him, that's a model of heaven to have the people come and experience his presence. Well, this is where now the text transitions to talking about the high priest. And this is how we're gonna finish our sermon. Chapter 27, verse 21 tells us that in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed. So the last thing God puts in this whole tabernacle in this whole temple in the universe is humanity just like creation. For God is present in his dwelling, but he knows that sin still separates people. And so for communication's sake, for relation's sake, God appoints a priest to meet with him daily to facilitate relationship. Now, this is where it becomes so important. This is so essential because there's a book in the New Testament. It's called the book of Hebrews that hinges and makes the high priesthood the main emphasis of the book, that Jesus Christ is, is the high priest. It says in Hebrews chapter eight, verses one to two, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. And so we need to understand everything it tells us about the high priesthood, because It connects to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and it tells you why and how you are able to experience the presence of God by Jesus. So we'll connect this as we go. But let's talk quickly through the high priest's garments. So chapter 8 tells you about their garments that the high priest's garments are for glory and for beauty in verse two, and he's gonna consecrate them. And everything the priest wore embodied the tabernacle. It was a way to connect with God, and so it uses the same linens, it uses the same colors, and he's doing the same actions to help people have this connection. And the duties and the roles of the high priest required a greater holiness than all the other people around God's presence. The priest was not a butler, He was not a servant. He was not someone going in to sweep up dirt in the holy place. He was not someone just going in and tending the oil in the lamps or making sure to put the bread out. This is a person that's going in, and over and over again, it will keep calling this the tent of meeting. He's going in to meet as a representative for all the people. He goes before the presence of God to orient communication with God. Well, in verse 4, it will tell you what he's wearing, and these things are important. It says that he wears a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, which is awesome, a turban, and a sash. And this is all apparel that signified authority, but it's also meant to be representation and also the ability for the priests to discern the will of God. And so in verses 6 to 14, it describes this ephod, which is this torso garment that really goes over the shoulders like a vest that goes over the shoulders and is tied around the waist. And it tells you in verse 9 that there's onyx stones on each side that are engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel, six on one shoulder and six on the other, so that the high priest represents all the people before the Lord. The breastplate has this square kind of fancy pocket that's 18 inches fold over, and it goes from armpit to waist, and it held on the front in verses 17 to 21 stones that represent each of the tribes of Israel. And then in the pouch that's kind of from the fold over are these two other stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And I know everybody here wants me to explain what those are, and I'm not going to today, because it's, one, complicated, and two, not agreed upon by most scholars. But somehow that's being used to discern God's will in certain situations. But look at verse 12 of chapter 28, and then we're gonna to jump to verse 29. What are these doing? They are stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord. And verse 29 says, he shall bear the names of the son of, sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. Okay, that's interesting. When he goes into the holy place to bring to them a regular remembrance before the Lord. He holds the names of all the people over his heart on a breast piece that is meant to represent judgment. He is going in to represent the people and to turn aside God's wrath so he doesn't judge those people. Verses 31 to 35 tell you about his blue robe, which is a, really an eight-foot poncho with a hole in it. And it's got pomegranate tassels on the end and bells, and we don't have time to talk about the bells. <laughs> but all of this, is to show again the royalty, the beauty, and then there's no description of shoes or sandals. Why? Because when you go into God's presence, you're on holy ground. Now he'll have a turban with a gold plate on it, and we have to take a moment to talk about this. Verse 38 tells us that it's on Aaron's forehead and he shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Wait, what is this? the high priest bears the guilt of all their sacrifices and offerings. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So the high priest is a representative of the people and he is the one that is turning aside God's wrath, atoning for them, Every time he goes in, and every time the people see his turban with this gold plate that says, holy to the Lord, they're reminded that it's only by the high priest going into the holy place and going up to the altar of incense and communicating with God that their sacrifices have any power. We miss this in terms of how the whole system works. Now, chapter 29 is going to describe, and I'm not going to really tell you all this because we don't have time the process of consecrating and ordaining the priests to make everything in the tabernacle and the high priest and all of his clothing and all the people holy. It's about purity and it's about forgiveness. And there's gonna be washing and they're gonna wear certain garments. They're gonna be anointed with oil. They're gonna kill a bull and two rams. Blood's being rubbed on your ears and your thumbs and your feet. It's funny. But all of it is to see that in order for the high priest to attain the holiness necessary to approach God, a lot has to happen so he can draw near to the presence of God. Now, this is where we have to talk about an item that was not described earlier on, and you have to ask why, because chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, will tell you about one other piece of furniture in the holy place, the altar of incense, a small little altar that they would come and put incense kind of perfume stuff on that you would set on fire, and it would put a pleasing aroma And it tells us in verses 1 to 10 that the altar stands in front of the inner veil, and every morning and every evening, what did the high priest do? He would walk in and put the the incense on there and light it. And at the end of the whole description of the altar of incense, it says, it is most holy to the Lord. Why? Because this is a tent of meeting. This is the way you encounter and communicate with God. And the incense facilitated a direct encounter because the the smoke going up was supposed to represent the fragrant prayers, the words of the people, the words of the people that want to communicate with the God that's present among them. And the high priest is the one coming in and doing this. And when the high priest did this, this is the closest in the tabernacle you get to the presence of God outside the veil. One day a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would get to go in and put blood on the Ark of the Covenant to purify it for all sins, intentional and unintentional, across the year. But every other day, he would go to the altar of incense, which is seven feet away, seven feet away from the Ark of the Covenant, but you have a veil in between. It's the closest that a singular person draws to the presence of God but you have to remember what we talked about with the altar of sacrifice. Every morning, they would kill a lamb, and that blood, a whole burnt offering would be put up, and then the high priest, because of the sacrifice, could now enter the holy place to go and offer up the altar of incense. And then every evening, when they would sacrifice the lamb, the high priest could now enter again to go and offer something at the altar of incense. The burning of the the incense underscored the fact that an animal had to die so that the high priest could enter the room so that he could communicate with God. Now we're almost done. And so you go, why does all this matter? Now God's gonna still give them instructions on the Sabbath right after this because not only do they need sacred space, but they need sacred time. But it's also gonna finish with God's finally gonna give Moses the two tablets of the testimony but why take such time to talk about the tabernacle and the priesthood? Well, it's because Jesus as high priest serves at a sanctuary that is far more superior than the one we just read about. And so this is where I'm gonna let the book of Hebrews do the talking because it says it so beautifully. And I want you to just listen and make the connections along with me. Because Hebrews 9 verse 1 tells us that Aaron met with God at an earthly tabernacle, verse 24, made with human hands, chapter 8 verse 2, a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven to represent the people in matters related to God. As Aaron or the high priest was accepted, then the people were accepted and his meeting with God underpinned everything that he does. Hebrews 9.11 tells us that Jesus enters the tabernacle in heaven, not made with human hands, not part of creation, the true tabernacle set up by God to represent us. He goes in with all of our names on his chest, all of our names all over him to represent us. Chapter nine, verse 11 tells us that Jesus, um, sorry, that um, the high priest has come in, sorry, the high priest has, has to come in twice a day to meet with the presence of God. And then Hebrews 8 tells us that Jesus doesn't have to do that. He is presently seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He does not have to go out and have a sacrifice slaughtered so that he can go in. Therefore, he's able, Hebrews 7, to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus goes in to speak on your behalf. And to go, I've already forgiven Matt's sin. I've already washed it. And today I'm gonna talk for him again. The high priest having access always needed to intercede for all the messed up actions of others that always placed them in jeopardy of divine anger. He was constantly going before the Lord to turn aside God's wrath. If Jesus is the high priest, he is before the Lord and has turned aside God's wrath. Because even in the new covenant, we still wake up every morning and we sin, right? Even though you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, you wake up and sin. But look at what John says in 1 John 2. If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Because as a high priest... Jesus is able to go in and Hebrews 7, 26 to 27 tells us that he did this sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself on the cross because Jesus had something fuller to offer. And it's enacted on the promises, not just of the old Sinai covenant, but on the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and 32, that you would have a new heart, that God would recreate you from the inside out and so Jesus does away with the sins of many by the sacrifice of himself that's Hebrews 9:26. He enters the holy place not by the blood of animals but by means of his own blood securing an eternal redemption Hebrews 9:12. Listen to Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What did the book of Exodus start us with? People trapped in lifelong slavery because that is exactly what sin does to you. It traps you, it encloses you, it limits you. And so we function with this fear of death, this fear of life and we don't know how to function And this text tells us that through Jesus' death, he destroys all of that because he is the high priest. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14 says, when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those being made holy. He went in and did the role of the high priest. And so all these verses in Exodus 25 to 31, they're giving us details so that Israel can understand the presence of God among them and what needed to happen, but they're all pointing us to now and the experience we have with Jesus Christ to enter the presence of God, to encounter God. You guys, we could not encounter God if it was not for the priesthood and the tabernacle. Because if it didn't exist, then Jesus could not fulfill that role in fullness. It was part of how God set the system into place. And so the book of Hebrews, it's asking this question that I think is so incredibly important. Because if the work of Jesus as high priest is so great, it would be a folly to miss out on having a relationship with the one person that is the high priest. And the book of Hebrews even makes it clear it would be folly to allow the fear of faith, of persecution, the fear of all the stuff that happens in our world, and our life, keep us from encountering the relationship we can have with the high priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 actually says it the best. And so let me close us here. Says therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great High Priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil, um, from all from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That's one of those yes and amen passages. And it goes on and says, let us stir on one another with this truth, with this reality of what Jesus has done for you and what he has done for me. Now the end of Exodus, the people are going to build all of this. They're going to make the high priestly robes. They're going to set the system in place. And in building it and in creating it, the people invite God into their space to dwell. They say, you want to put your presence among us? We will build it. We will contribute for it because we want you here. It is no coincidence that in our day and age, when we talk about starting a relationship with Jesus, we tell you to invite him into your heart because that's what the people were doing when they built the tabernacle. They were inviting God into their space. And so I talked in the beginning about the two pieces of this being about dwelling and meeting. There's a lot of us that know God exists. There's a lot of you that know that God dwells near. And yet there's a lot of us that don't meet with him. The book of Hebrews tells you That today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like the people of Israel did. Maybe today is a day for some of us that we go, I don't want to just discover God's presence from a distance. I want to meet with Jesus because he has done everything in this sacrificial system and everything in this tabernacle and everything in the priesthood so I can meet with God and you know what's so awesome is that the tabernacling doesn't end with Jesus like we said earlier and Paul asserts it in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 when we invite Jesus in what does it tell us you as the body you as an individual become the tabernacle the Holy Spirit resides in you God dwells you are worthy of having the presence of the almighty creator and the perfect savior and the great high priest being inside of you. And that's how you live out your faith, by having the spirit function from within. You orient your whole life around this. And so the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifice, they remind us of who God is, what Jesus accomplished as high Priest, and who we are in relationship to him. And so let me pray for you, and then I encourage you to allow this to stir on one another towards love and good deeds. It tells you later in that passage in Hebrews to not give up on the habit of meeting together, to encourage each other in these things. Let me pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and we cannot fathom all the details and intricacies of this tabernacle, the priesthood, the garments, the sacrificial system. Lord, all these pieces that the people of Exodus are experiencing for the first time, discovering what it means to have the presence of God among them and to have a person that represents their way to communicate and dwell near to the presence of God. Lord, we thank you that by your perfect purposes, Jesus is the perfect high priest who totally understands human temptation But Lord, he was perfect. He did not need sacrifices to wash him clean because he became the once and for all sacrifice. And God, we wanna encounter you in full. And there's some of us that we know you dwell near, but we have not met with you. And if there's people here, Lord, that they hear that and they know that, Lord, that they would come and talk with someone today because they can experience your presence now and it can change them from the inside out. And there's some of us that we know this, and your spirit right now is sparking inside of us. And God, you want us to now live that out, to take the things we learned from Pastor Judah last week with the covenant and go, this is what it looks like now in my day-to-day because I am a tabernacle of the living God. And so Lord, we thank you for these things. We pray that you would change us and change everything around us. And we love you, and we ask this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ.